Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome. We're, we're so honored to have you here. It's a great opportunity, and uh, thank, thank you all for coming. It's a terrific uh, group. So, yep. Jeff? Well, and before turning to the guest of honor, I also want to uh, welcome the rest of the Indian delegation. Uh, Ambassador Shringle, I believe you've spoken here at Heritage twice in the past few months. Uh, it was an honor to have you both times, uh, to Joint Secretaries Das and Ambule, um, and to DCM Amit Kumar. Uh, we're really grateful to have such a high-profile Indian delegation here to be hosting you, uh, and to everyone around the table that made time out of your day uh, to join us. Uh, a man who really, in my opinion, needs no introduction, uh, Minister Jaishankar is, in my opinion, India's most distinguished contemporary diplomat, uh, former foreign secretary, former ambassador to the United States and China, a over 40-year diplomatic career, including postings in Moscow, Colombo, Singapore, Budapest, Tokyo, and the Czech Republic. Uh, I first met Minister Jaishankar almost 10 years ago exactly uh, on a delegation to China with AFPC President Herman Parchner over here when he was serving as ambassador to China. And every year we went to China with a pretty high-level delegation and got very high-level briefings from the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Ambassador, Chinese think tanks. But I remember coming away from that meeting thinking that this Ambassador Jaishankar was, was the most well-informed person in Beijing. We had gotten the best briefing, and I thought, this is, a, this is someone to watch. Already at the top of his career, but he's going places. And you've somehow exceeded all expectations in that front. I know you've had an absurd number of engagements while you've been in Washington. I think 43 by someone's count, and that was just this morning. Um, <laughs> But you've promised to save the most stimulating content for this discussion. So with that, we are very excited to turn the floor over to you, Minister Jaishankar. We'll take a few questions after your remarks. We'll try and group them together, and I'm going to restate them in the recording mic here. But we are at your mercy. Let me say what a great pleasure it is to be back here and meet so many people, some after a bit of a gap. Uh, and uh, I think I was last here, what was it, was it April, March, yes. March, April? Uh, when uh, uh, actually we, we'd done a round of the think tank world then as well. So it's not an entirely novel experience. I mean, maybe in this position, but uh, it's an old habit in a way. Uh, but uh, look, it's, it's really great to be with all of you. And uh, I think uh, for me, the the benefit of this event would be to speak about what's happened at home, how we look at the world, but do so in a way in which uh, it largely fits into you know your your range of interests and your your priorities. So um, when I was thinking about okay, what do I build my remarks around? Um, I felt that it might really be a good opportunity to have a discussion on, on really the, the relevance of nationalism in international politics today. Uh, because uh, what I see is a, a, a concept which has been very loosely used uh, in the analytical and media world uh, without uh, uh, necessarily uh, taking into account the uh, the granularity of uh, the world landscape, uh, and often uh, sort of uh, leading to, frankly, uh, uh, wrong, uh, in my opinion, wrong conclusions and uh, mm, a certain amount of confusion. So let me let me kind of 
build my remarks around that subject and you know I'll touch on a lot of things which have happened recently uh, and then we can you know I'll be very happy to to talk about uh, your interest so you know as I look at foreign policy and having done it all my life I actually came to the conclusion one day that the Indian street was in many ways at least as smart and at times smarter than the South Block. Okay, so it's a very painful conclusion. <laughs> uh, but, but, and I'll tell you why. Because if you look at, uh, you know, tra activities like trade, travel, education, you know, so, so, they made their choices over a period of time in the last 25, 30 years. And those choices actually were in advance of the policy choices which we made. So, so it's, it's interesting, in a, in a, even in a kind of a geopolitical way, the street uh, intuition has actually been very strong uh, in India. And, and I think with the passage of time, that's grown. Uh, that's grown because there's more information out there. Uh, people are more aware. Uh, there are more tools to be aware. Uh, and in part also because uh, I think uh, there, there's a there's an identity, uh, you know, identities create perspectives, and and that's also been part of uh, the change which has happened. So for anybody dealing today with foreign policy. One of the challenges, uh, certainly with us, but I, I would suggest to you it's pretty universal, is how do you actually reconcile societal sentiment uh, with, with uh, foreign policy, with policy making, if you would. Now, it's not my contention, you know, when I say that the, the, the street intuition has been good. You know, obviously, policy has its place. You know, we would have mm, a degree of diligence and deliberation and knowledge and insights which only come from doing that on a on a regular basis but the the issue you know the the conclusion i would draw is it's important for policymakers not to be out of touch with sentiment in their society and obviously shape sentiment but you know uh, but the moment the gaps are too big for too long on two important issues then I, I think you actually get a governance credibility uh, issue. Uh, and uh, I, I would say, uh, certainly in our case, on, on a lot of the big issues of the day, actually uh, the, the street reaction uh, has been, has been uh, uh, sort of uh, um, very, uh, very perceptive. Uh, and uh, uh, today there would be uh, a very strong alignment between popular sentiment uh, and policy making, and in a, I, I would kind of suggest to you that's that's part of a democratization of of uh, policy making. Now, um, if I were to look at the world, um, uh, as I said, I, you know the world's a very differentiated place. We use limited concepts to describe what is a very complex reality, uh, but. It would, there would be trends nevertheless. Uh, and um, I, I think uh, some of the trends which all of us need to factor in, uh, but it's very clear that issues of identity and culture matter more today uh, in world politics than they did before. Uh, and these have actually, interestingly, have had electoral validation and revalidation. Uh, and that, to my mind, is a, is a characteristic of our uh, current uh, global era. Uh, to a certain extent, there has been a reaction to the cultural facets of globalization. Uh, challenges, of course, to the economic facets, but they have much stronger structural roots than the cultural facets do. The economic facets have got more complicated, but the cultural reactions to globalization are clearly very sharp and in many geographies quite lasting. Uh, there has also been in a kind of way, a return of history in different parts of the world, countries uh, which have historically, I'm not even talking India, China here, I'm talking other countries, uh, historically played uh, a role in a, a kind of 
stepping back into positions of prominence. You can see a lot of that in the Middle East. And I would say today, if there's an X factor in international relations, uh, that word nationalism, which again I would caution means different things to different people, uh, is very much uh, the X factor. And here's the difference, you know, nationalism has a certain connotation in Europe, which is not necessarily positive. But I think in Asia, nationalism is seen very much as a sort of natural corollary to economic progress. And almost like, you know, you're independent, you're progressed, you're prosperous, and nationalism comes with all of that. Uh, now, uh, sort of dilating a bit on nationalism, you can actually categorize them uh, in the world. Uh, but before I do that, look at the durability of this concept, okay? Uh, and, and bear in mind, most, con you know, most concepts don't last that long uh, in, in uh, uh, human history. Nationalism actually, through 19th century, defeated multinational empires in different parts of the world. In the 20th century, it helped to overcome colonialism. Uh, it then was actually probably the most successful uh, mindset against communism. Uh, it has, uh, in different parts of the world, countered faith-based uh, transnational uh, loyalties. Uh, it's also interestingly dealt with narrower loyalties than national ones, and in, in certainly in our part of the world, uh, it's been very effective in dealing with regionalism and separatism. Uh, and today, actually, when it's set up as a counterpoise to globalism, uh, you know, this this is a actually, a, a, shall I say, the Westphalian construct has actually proved extraordinarily durable over, over a very long time and uh, clearly continues to do so. So when it comes to categorization, uh, I, would, I would put it broadly in three categories. I mean, you have, as I said, the, the, you know, with economic prosperity, with uh, uh, greater influence, uh, you have a, a sort of, a, a, to my mind, an assertive uh, nationalism which uh, which many nations would, would naturally show. And that's not new, that is always, uh, that's in a sense almost like the nationalism norm, uh, if you would. Uh, you have some exceptions today, I won't put them in any category. I think India and China, largely because these are civilizational states who have been dominant on the global stage and likely to assume that role more. You have today a lot of reactive nationalism, nationalism coming out of insecurity, uh, out of privileges which may not be maintainable. Uh, you see a lot of that in Europe. Uh, you have expressive nationalism, I mean, very identity-driven, uh, which shape each other. I think a lot of that you see uh, in the Middle East. And, I, you know, somewhere today, this fusion of economics, politics, culture, faith, identity, this is actually, uh, uh, I, I would argue, one of the difficult issues for contemporary international relations to uh, grapple with. So now where does India stand in all of this? So I'm here today to make the main point to you that in a sense there is Indian exceptionalism on this issue. Well, actually on many other issues as well, but uh, on this one. That on the one hand, you have a more nationalist India, more nationalist in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, not just that the, the people uh, vote over a certain way or think a certain way or stronger sense of collectivism. I actually have found empirically that issues which normally would have stayed with people like us, which would not have had a resonance in public, uh, are today uh, doing so. Uh, there is much greater interest in, uh, you know, India, what's happening in the world, what are the interests of India, what is the standing of India, how successful or not successful you've been. So it's really, I mean, to my mind, that connect between the street and policy making has actually become uh, very much uh, sharper. Uh, but exceptionalism, because while all of this is going, actually the appetite of India for foreign affairs has grown. And that's quite remarkable because it's pretty much contrary to what you see in many other uh, parts of the world. It's not unique, by the way. I can think of a few other countries in 
of a different kind who may have uh, similar appetites. Uh, but uh, certainly today, uh, I mean, if you look at the attention given to foreign policy in India, uh, uh, you know, how much people follow it, uh, and what we ourselves are doing, you know, and, and this is not just sentiment. I mean, it is actually translated into policy making, into budgetary allocations. I mean, we are one foreign ministry whose budget has been uh, rising reasonably well. Uh, uh, I mean, we have our own challenges. We are trying to grow the numbers out there. Uh, but if you look at what we are doing abroad in terms of uh, uh, development assistance, to, in terms of training, in terms of our relating to uh, different parts of the world, uh, it is way, way beyond what it used to be in the past. And an example I would give you is among the, uh, uh, you know, the meetings which the Prime Minister had at the UNGA this year. There was a collective meeting with the leaders of the Pacific Islands and a, meet, a meeting with the leaders of the Caribbean. You know, and that today actually shows you, you know, it's not just South Asia, it's not just you know, ASEAN on this side or Gulf on that side. By the way, we did those meetings too. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, today, the fact that uh, we, you know, we see it uh, important enough to engage uh, that far out would actually tell you how, how uh, deep that sense of uh, international uh, commitment uh, is for us. Now, um, in, in uh, all of this, we uh, do understand that, you know, uh, with this mindset, as you navigate the world, you will, we will have, uh, you know, uh, the challenges that we have to prepare for. At the sort of top top line level, it would be the challenge of multipolarity to navigate a world where there are not just different uh, centers of power, but different centers of power who are all more nationalistic than they used to be before. Uh, so uh, it's both structurally and sentiment-wise uh, different from the way international relations were. Uh, and of course, in our own neighborhood, where uh, it's important for us to uh, ensure that you know uh, the rise of India is seen positively by all the neighbors, that it is actually a lifting tide, that we kind of win their confidence and make them partners, which actually means we have to have a much more generous, non-reciprocal uh, approach towards them. And we need to do things which make a strong case in their country uh, for advocating better uh, ties with India. And that is really what our neighborhood uh, first uh, policy is about. So at home, of course, I mean, uh, we have many challenges. Happy to speak to you, depending on your interest on what they are. But among them is, uh, uh, you know, this quest for a more perfect union, where a lot of the challenges of development or making sure that no community, no region, no faith is left behind, uh, that uh, regions which in the past did not uh, uh, get the same degree of attention or were not as aligned as they should be with the rest of the nation, those kinds of issues are addressed. And finally, you know, having spoken about nationalism, I would also speak about generosity and, in a sense, a kind of a moral obligation. There's often the question asked whether India would, and these are not my words, would be an Eastern power or a Western power, meaning would it be uh, democratic or would it not be democratic? I think by now, 70 years, at least that question is answered. But I would also suggest to you that it would be a southern power, that it would be a power with very strong bondings uh, with the developed world, which would enjoy, as it goes up in the international order, a degree of trust and confidence of other developing states. And that would be reflected in our own activities and commitments to those states. And you can see that, you can see that in as I said, in our development assistance commitments, you can see that in our disaster relief responses. You can see that in our Africa story, which is not written about very much. Uh, but so I kind of think it would be a southwestern power uh, in, uh, in, in that sense. Uh, so uh, this, you know, uh, to my mind would be uh, uh, sort of where is the world and where is India and its mindset at this time. I, hopeful that these remarks could help frame uh, a discussion, but I'd really be happy to respond to these or any other issues of interest which may be 
uh, you know, beyond those remarks. Yeah, maybe we'll take uh, a three at a time and give you some time to eat in the process. Okay. So in this case, long questions with uh, no question marks would be very helpful. <laughs> the one time, that's helpful. Uh, I have a relatively short one, I'm sorry, but uh, folks around here hear enough of me speaking. So um, you talked about the engagement outside of sort of uh, India's immediate neighborhoods, the, the, the Pacific Islands yep. and, and elsewhere. Um, so much of yep. how we evaluate these sorts of things is the number of meetings and the number of special delegations and all this sort of thing. But is there another way that we can quantify it or substantiate it uh, in terms of investment or assistance or military exercises or presence? Is there some that. numbers that Ten you could courts. put on that in terms of engagement, particularly in the, in the Western Pacific? Dr. Skinner and, and oh, I'm sorry. Great to see you, Foreign Minister. Um, I would like to ask you about the future of China. Many of us have heard you talk about China before. We realize you're here to talk about US-India, but of course that's such a central factor. Um, my question is, has anything happened in China in the past few months that has changed your assessment of China's trajectory? I'm thinking particularly about Hong Kong, uh, but also the slowing of the Chinese economy. Uh, some of the new pressures on Xi Jinping, maybe they're not so new, but um, you've always been such a sophisticated observer of that country. And many people have been surprised by Hong Kong, many of us are not surprised, but I'd be interested in anything that surprised you and what this may mean for China's own trajectory. And one more, Cliff, and anybody else who has a question, we'll do the tent cards up. Thank you again so much for being here. Um, I'd also like you to address Afghanistan in particular quite a bit of pressure and an inclination on the part of the current administration to think that the U.S. and some of these Afghanistan entirely pull out all 14 members that are currently there. And uh, how to substantially quantify India's engagement. Talk about what you think that would mean and whether that's a good idea in your view. And um, while you're on it, maybe a little bit about Pakistan's role in the region and in Afghanistan, but not, not just in Afghanistan. So we have a question on uh, quantifying India's engagement in the Western Pacific, uh, one on China, uh, including uh, Hong Kong and Chinese econ, and then uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. That's perfect because I've just finished. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, I think, um, Walter, that's a good question. Um, it's a good question because, um, you know, one of the things I learned in my last job was look at numbers. They, they speak better than words. Uh, so um, I don't have a Western Pacific number at the top of my head, but I have, I have say, an Africa number, okay? Because they were round numbers, very easy to remember. Uh, in 2015, uh, we made, you know, we have these summits with all the African countries, like. US, China, Japan, now Russia is starting it. So in 2015, we made a commitment to Africa of $10 billion in soft loans and $600 million as grant. We are coming to four years of that. Um, we have, uh, in that 10 billion, we've reached about seven. Uh, in that 600 million grant we've exceeded, we've gone up to 700 million. We also had a training commitment of 50,000 uh, heads over five years. Uh, we had clocked 40,000, we are in excess of 40,000. Uh, so again, as I said, it's not something which people have written about very much. Maybe we ourselves haven't kind of broadcast it. Mm. Now, it's not just here, the numbers are important, mm. but it's also mm, the sort of the quality of what we do and the approach which we take. Uh, we had, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, pretty much on uh, many of these subjects, uh, today there would be one kind of definitive pronouncement which we would regard as a policy, policy speech, okay? Uh, for example, when it came to the Indian Ocean, there's a speech which, you, which spelled out that term Sagar, which is our word for the sea, for the first time in 2015. The one for Africa was done last year at the Ugandan parliament. Uh, Prime Minister spoke out there. And 
essentially what uh, the approach was that uh, we were prepared to really step out where Africa is concerned uh, and build their capabilities, work with them on connectivity. But we expected that to be done on the basis of uh, ideas and requirements which they would spell out. Uh, and the, our sense of the projects would be that it would involve as much local participation uh, as possible. Our intention would be to, to hand over those projects for running uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, and uh, a lot of this was also, there was a lot of green elements uh, into it. So uh, a big portion of this is actually solar energy. But uh, there was stuff which we did, which was an extrapolation of our own experiences, water, uh, for example, uh, or agriculture-related uh, projects of various kinds. Now, we've taken that approach uh, not in entirety because each region is a little bit different. Uh, but uh, we have both, I mean, in the, in the CARICOM summit and the FIPIC summit, FIPIC is the Pacific Island one, which we did uh, in, in the UN, uh, on the sidelines of the UN. In both cases, uh, we are really looking, I, I may have got the number wrong, but I mean, we are looking in excess of $100 million commitments uh, in terms of soft loan, I think 150 was my recollection. Uh, would that be correct? Hmm? $150 million loan commitment because we also have to look at the absorption capacity. But again, we are looking in a sense at uh, projects which are very heavily community focused, development focused, not very capital intensive projects, very conscious of the debt uh, implications of what uh, we are doing and uh, very sensitive to the fact that the partner country must kind of feel that they have ownership of it. That's not something we came and did out there, but they, they co-own it. In fact, the majority own it. So uh, uh, we, in, in uh, uh, Western Pacific, uh, it's been, again, it's been a lot of solar. Uh, it's been some agriculture. It's been a lot of training. Uh, uh, by the way, in Africa as well, uh, we, we, we are pushing big distance, uh, distance health uh, and distance learning programs. Uh, so it, in, in sort of Hindi, it's called E-Arogya e, e and E-Bharti, no? Uh, in a E-Vidya, E-Vidya and E-Arogya program, uh, you know, initiatives. So the, uh, the uh, sense of it really is IT, agriculture, green, um, renewables, areas where we have experience, we have a reputation. Uh, if we can kind of extrapolate that out as part of our development assistance program and embed it in our foreign policy sort of vision, uh, that's the way we, we sort of uh, see it working. And uh, we, I think, reached a certain level here in five years. So a lot of the challenge today is to scale that up. Uh, on the China uh, China trajectory, look, uh, you know, honestly, um, uh, when it comes to uh, policy making and policy implementation, uh, we tend to take what you have. I mean, I may have views about how you dress. I would like to keep it to myself. By the way, you dress very well. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, uh, certainly we've been quite, uh, you know, uh, I, I would say it's a part historical, cultural uh, tradition. Uh, I think uh, generally Western countries have been much more articulate and expressive uh, of uh, their uh, uh, beliefs and values and interests. That's not, that's not the way it is in Asia. I mean, what you feel, you may subtly indicate, uh, but it's not, I mean, we don't uh, have the same tradition of uh, public articulation uh, and uh, public sort of shaping that, that Western countries do. So when it comes to China, I mean, for me, what's important is I have this neighbor who's my biggest neighbor, who's now the second biggest economy in the world, uh, with whom I have a long history, not always an easy history, but I would like to make sure that this relationship remains not, I mean, stability for me is my bottom line requirement. 
but you know how do i grow this relationship how do i build stakes on both sides uh, that uh, that you know there is that support for that growth of relationship how do i handle you know any any contradictions any differences that kind of come out in the open so it's a it's a very complicated relationship but one which we frankly give enormous amount of time and priority to because we believe that it's not just our own two countries but really the larger region even the world uh, has vested interest has stakes in that uh, you know in broadening the stability uh, and the substance uh, of that relationship and so a lot of our attention actually goes into uh, this this aspect of it how do you i mean as i said the minimum manage it ideally grow it where you can uh, and in recent years uh, we we've, we've seen some uh, uh, positive developments uh, we've seen uh, trade numbers improve we've seen sectors where we didn't have market access we have now started to get market access we don't know you know uh, i'll have to sort of wait and see really how much that grows uh, we've seen by and large you know uh, the border has been very very stable uh, so and uh, most important we our ability to engage and converse with them uh, on a range of issues has really been it's it's sort of it's freer it's franker Uh, so uh, those those to my mind uh, have been good signs uh, for us we are of course aware that there is a larger global context in which all of this is happening but you know that's that's uh, okay with us on afghanistan and pakistan uh, you know i've had conversations uh, with americans in washington and otherwise on on afghanistan i mean obviously lot of that stays with me but my overall impression is that the us i mean it's not an impression i think everybody can see that uh, but the us is heading for a change of posture but what exactly that change of posture would be is is unclear uh, at this point i assume uh, reasonably that that's a internal debate which is as it should be uh, but uh, uh, again i mean in the sense i have to take the reality for what it is i mean i may have my views but at the end of the day it is completely america's business what posture it has so uh, our our uh, conversations with uh, the us uh, are largely around you know what do we do to to maintain to secure the gains of of uh, uh, the last many years and and there are indisputably gains out there Uh, and then this point which it pertains to our own relationship with with afghanistan uh, which is that uh, the you know uh, we we have a long historical cultural now economic developmental political relationship with afghanistan it has security elements as well now uh, and uh, we uh, we know that it's a very extremely pluralistic polity uh so uh and and you know that has its own uh, sort of uh, challenges but overall we do believe that uh, you know in any country the people of that country the elected representatives of that country all of them should obviously have a very major voice about the direction of events in in their society uh so uh, that will obviously be one of our guiding principles as we look at it uh, we've been involved in some of the formats and processes pertaining to afghanistan not all of them uh, but you know sometimes you you can still uh, make your interest known or your views known or uh, engage people even if you're not uh, embedded in a particular format in a formal manner uh, with regard to the role of pakistan you know i mean look what can i say after after so many years i can give you a list of indian development projects out there which is as long as my arm i would like to see a list of pakistani development projects in afghanistan and that says so much you know that uh, i mean if at the at the end of the day if you ask this question so what did you contribute in the last uh, uh, 17 18 years i think probably the best answer they would come up with is you know we housed a lot of afghan refugees which is true they did 
Uh, but then it's a question of what they did with that, uh, you know, uh, housing. Uh, so um, we have to, when we look at the future, obviously we cannot remain impervious to the past. Yeah, we're going to go around. Andrew? Uh, Minister, I, I also wanted to ask about uh, China, but from a slightly different angle. Um, I was um, curious to get your take on the kind of the way the China debates are now moving in a number of countries and how you see this in India. Uh, not the classic questions about borders and rivalry, but the kind of the readjustment of the openness of systems to China in all sorts of ways. Um, technology partnerships, the 5G question that's there, influence operations, investment flows, um, uh, capital, access to data. Um, you're, you're clearly seeing not just in the US, but in a number of places, a kind of rebalancing of the answer that countries are striking on the degree of openness that their systems should have to China. Um, and I wanted to get your take on whether whether you see India currently um, striking the balance on some of these questions in um, in, in the right place, or, or do you see, particularly with some of the big decisions on, on 5G and other areas uh, looming um, in the next period of time, um, do you see a kind of tightening that might take um, uh, place in some of these areas? And to the extent that you're willing to comment on it, um, uh, how you see the ripple effects, of course, on, on these kind of decoupling questions um, between the US and China playing out uh, for India as well? Vaccine question. I had a vaccine yesterday. Said to me that the curfew was lifted in Kashmir. There will be a false flag attack. They they seem to be pretty sure about that. Chillingly so, yes. Obviously, there's contingency planning for attack in Kashmir that's traced back to Pakistan. I wonder if you can comment on that at all. And, uh, given the response after Obama, uh, that was a, a new level of uh, retaliation from India, do we expect to see another uh, step, um, escalatory step there? And have you had any interaction with American officials uh, discussing these kind of contingencies and what the U.S. position might be if something were to happen? Jeff, I think we're running a bit tight on time, and the next one is the Secretary of Defense, so I can't keep him waiting. Uh, so oh, if he can, why don't I take every, you know, all the questions, and then I, it will be better for me to go through them all. Minister, I want to return to your thing about nationalism. Uh, and one of the other ways that India is exceptional, or at least rare, is its diaspora around India, which you could argue is a counter to nationalism in some places. So I wonder, if we accept the premise that India is in a strategic uh, competition with others, uh, then how can India use its diaspora, one of its key points of leverage, in its uh, quest mm, yeah. to okay. increase its power and security? So my question is also about nationalism. So we've seen this sort of phenomenon rise in many countries, and uh, I think it's fair to say that in many places, not just over here, but in places like Hungary and Turkey, the rise of nationalism has, has brought with it a series of foreign policy challenges for countries where this has happened domestically. Um, what kind of, in what ways do you think the rise of nationalism in India makes your job either easier or harder? Okay, so we have, um broad-based question on China, 5G, influence ops and decoupling. We have uh, Pakistan's accusations of false flag operations, Pawama-style responses. I said Pakistan's plans are false. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, question about India's approach to uh, POK. 
how can India better use its diaspora? Uh, whether you see the rise of nationalism as making your job easier or harder, and one from us on the Quad, uh, the minister, foreign minister's level meeting of the Quad. Uh, any thoughts you have on how that went, how India views the Quad moving forward, would be grateful. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, uh, let me start with the China question. Look, our intention, obviously, is to progress our relations with China. We are very clear on that, and we get the sense that they, too, would like uh, to see relations becoming better and more substantive. So on a lot of the issues which, you know, different countries face with China, uh, frankly, we would weigh the issues on their merits and largely take a bilateral approach. I mean, we actually essentially handled our China relationship very, very bilaterally. Uh, and we believe that's, frankly, the best way uh, of uh, moving moving uh, forward on that. I think on uh, uh, some of the issues that you laid out, I mean, our position on 5G, for example, is we don't see 5G as a political problem. We see 5G, 5G is a, for us a telecom issue, and we will make whatever decisions we have to at the right time on the merits of that. Uh, particular decision. On the decoupling uh, issue, again, you know, look, uh, uh, I mean, in a sense, I mean, uh, decoupling is kind of overstated, but it is not unreal. I mean, there's, there's uh, somewhere, I mean, what exactly people mean by decoupling itself is a debate. But I, I it's not a word I would have used. Uh, but I would only say this, that if you ask me, would there be consequences of the US-China trade friction for other uh, economies? Of course there would be. I mean, there would be uh, because uh, to some degree, I mean, you've seen yesterday what the WTO Director General put out uh, in report in terms of its impact on global trade flows. There will be some disruptions uh, in supply chains of various kinds. There'll be a lot of relocations of supply chains. Uh, where we are concerned, it's not that we hunger for what other people have, but we are always open to new business coming in, you know, and we would take any new business coming in on the uh, on the sort of the attractions of that uh, particular business. And we're not the only guys in Asia who, who are doing that. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what you said about uh, Kashmir, look, uh, we today are still, I mean, this is not a small step, okay? what we've done. It's a long-awaited step. In my view, it was the right thing to have been done. It should have been done many years earlier. But leave all of that aside. At the moment, given the fact that there have been such deep investments made in Kashmir, both in terrorism by Pakistan and in a kind of uh, uh, separatism by uh, parts of the local, uh, local elite, uh, we don't expect this uh, to be, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, uncontested, you know, there are going to be reactions to all of that. Uh, our strategy is obviously to reason with people and get them to, and you know, uh, put out our point of view and get people to understand why all of this is for their long-term benefit. Clearly, you know, our intention is that they would, uh, you know, uh, buy into that so that, you know, therein lies the success of our policy. Now, in that interim period, we will take precautions because past history has shown the need for precautions. I mean, you 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 know a lot about our part of the world. You know what happened after the Burhan Wani uh, encounter, uh, and uh, we've you've seen how uh, internet uh, um, and uh, data flows have been used to radicalize, to mobilize. Uh, so, I mean, uh, frankly, we would we would be failing in our duty if we didn't take all those precautions, but. Having said that, if you look at the uh, the instructions to the security forces, these are instructions of extreme restraint. So, uh, in fact, you know the information I have is, I mean, frankly, even if you look uh, in terms of uh, uh, people who are treated by uh, uh, in in uh, medical facilities for you know, uh, injuries which, which happen sometimes because of demonstrations, you're getting as many uh, security forces as you're getting, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the protesters who are uh, against this particular move. And that, to me, demonstrates a very high degree of restraint. So, uh, uh, you know, now what will happen after that? 
naturally, I mean, what do you expect the Pakistanis to say that, you know, once everything eases up, we expect calm and happiness to return? No, they won't. They will paint apocalyptic scenarios. Because one, that is their uh, wish. Two, that's actually what their game plan uh, has been for, not now, for 70 years. So, uh, I, I think it's important to have a historical context to judge these remarks. I mean, this is not a conversation which began on August 5. I mean, and these are, you know, their policies and their actions began on day one. I mean, Kashmir acceded to India with Pakistani invaders threatening to burn down Srinagar. I mean, please look at the history of Kashmir. So, so there's, there's a lot out there which, which we uh, need to take into account. And, but our endeavor would be to manage this as well as we can. I'm reasonably confident we should uh, succeed out there. Uh, and uh, I, you know, we, we've also seen a lot of alarmistic rhetoric, I mean, not just about false flag, I mean, jihad, I mean, going all the way to, to nuclear weapons. I mean, that kind of gives you a sense of responsibility of the people who are saying uh, a lot of this. Uh, you know, on your issue of uh, uh, the Pakistan, the illegal Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, look, the point I was making was a very simple one. My sovereignty and my jurisdiction is laid out by my maps. You know, my maps have been there for, for about 70 years. Now, uh, that's my claim. And naturally, if I have a claim, as you would have a claim, as anybody would have a claim, you would hope one day that if there are territories in your claim of which you don't have physical jurisdiction, one day you will. I mean, it's, a, it's as simple as that. Uh, on uh, the diaspora, interesting question, because, you know, look, uh, it's, uh, to my mind, the role of the diaspora would also reflect the state of the world. And if the state of the world is actually one where you have, uh, you, you know, it's, it's much more uh, multipolar, much more hedged, uh, much more everybody doing something with everybody. Uh, you, the diaspora would never be put in the sharp position of nationalism at both ends. You know, there may be nationalism at both ends, but not conflicting nationalism, if you would. You know, and certainly we don't think our nationalism uh, conflicts with anybody. I'll therefore dispute some of the analogies which Sadanand drew. Uh, the uh, so. Uh, for us, actually, the diaspora becomes even more relevant because, you know, uh, nationalism in India is a kind of a uh, expression of the democratization of the Indian polity and Indian society. So that if you look at who rules India in a way, I would suggest to you that a much broader set of people from much smaller cities and countryside do. It is, India is indisputably less elitist than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Okay. You can actually see the broadening uh, of, of uh, uh, the Indian polity. And when that happens, I think you have people, I mean, you know, if you look at where they were educated, what they speak, how they think, I mean, naturally they are much more rooted uh, in a way than many of their predecessors. And therefore they are more likely to express a uh, lot of their uh, heritage and uh, uh, culture uh, then people who in a, in a sense have had their idioms and their thinking shaped by a kind of a larger uh, sort of uh, uh, a globalized uh, uh, sort of uh, world uh, so i and and if you see actually uh, empirically i mean uh, please see how the diaspora today connects with india as opposed to how it used to I mean, that kind of answers your question. Uh, so then on the issue of, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you uh, sort of, uh, does it make your uh, job easier or harder? Look, I, I don't want to get into country by country comparisons, but again, I, I would come back to that point that today India actually is more international even while it is more national it's you know it's a, it's interesting I don't know did you see the article by Prime Minister Modi in the New York Times today he actually quotes Gandhi to that effect 
that you know uh, that uh, in a in a sense we take nationalism internationalism as a binary choice certainly in india people don't feel that way now i can't answer for other societies and other parts of the world so I, to me actually uh, honestly a much more self confident society much surer about its choices much you know much less baggage you are carrying much more you know you don't have that second guessing because at the end of the day you you have your feet on the ground uh, so i i i mean i would urge you to look back certainly at the last 5 years in foreign policy and do a correlation between decisions we have taken the choices we have made and the political mood of the country and i think i would assert that point that actually a more nationalistic more internationalistic uh, uh society allows you to make uh, bolder choices on difficult issues with greater confidence uh on the last question the quad uh look i was very happy with it uh looking at everybody else's face on the table uh, i believe they were too uh, i i do you know some of it honestly was i mean among us the quad ministers we had uh, good good uh, personal relations uh, some of it is due to people like him who really did all the preparatory work so that you know we had uh, shall i say uh issues to talk about uh, i mean not from scratch but where you know uh, we addressed it at the level of complexity which i believe ministers uh, should do so uh, suddenly i was very pleased with it and uh, secretary pompeo uh, told me that uh, that was the case with him so uh, you know uh, i'm i'm really very you know happy that that has reached this level of maturity and we're very we're happy very you've happy. been so gracious with your time I know you have an important meeting to get to next. So uh, thank you from, from all of us here. Uh, we wish you luck not only on, on the rest of your stay in the U.S., but on the journey ahead. And India is uh, lucky to have you at the helm.